our study this evening, I've given the title, Unlikely Heroes. <clears throat> so, you know, everybody <clears throat> loves a story about a hero. And we all know how the stories go. There's a problem that needs to be solved, and someone who's smart and strong and intelligent steps up to the plate, and they save the day. And we all love it, can't get enough of a story about a good hero. And, you know, who wouldn't want to be themselves a hero? Everyone likes to make a positive impact, and especially those that, you know, are of the kind that would sit in this room that are striving to be a Christian, striving to be something better. We all love making a positive impact. It feels good to help other people. Uh, it feels good for other people to be thankful for us <clears throat> from time to time and to recognize us as being of value. <clears throat> now, I recently listened to a compilation of some motivational speeches or pieces of motivational speeches that Denzel Washington had given, and I don't know what your thoughts are about Denzel Washington, um, but some of the things he said I thought were interesting, and one thing that I thought was spot on and worth thinking about is he said, the most selfish thing that you can do in this world is to help someone else. The gratification, the goodness that comes to you, and the good feeling that you get from helping others, nothing's better than that. Now, it's to me, it was a very interesting way to think about it. Um, <clears throat> it makes me think of the Beatitudes, because, you know, at surface level, you read over them and you think, this just doesn't make sense. They seem like a bunch of oxymorons. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who uh, are mourning, for they shall be comforted. Just, it doesn't seem to make sense on the surface. But just like this one, uh, this quote that I mentioned, um, it seems to not make sense on the surface, but it really does. Uh, the most selfish thing you can do in this world is to help somebody else. Uh, we all get a good feeling from helping others. We would all like to be a hero, to be recognized as good and as valuable, someone who overcomes the odds and someone who makes the world a better place, someone who saves people. <clears throat> and if you're like me, you might think that a hero is someone who's made up of ingredients that you don't have. You know, someone who's stronger, smarter, a better person, more well-spoken, better looking, whatever it is, just the list goes on and on. Um, but this is a lesson about unlikely heroes, <clears throat> individuals who on the surface that we can read of in the Bible uh, seemed like maybe they were lacking something, but in the end, they truly turned out to be heroes. So the first unlikely hero I would like to consider is Moses. And if you know anything about the Bible, aside from Jesus being the Son of God, you likely know about Moses. Uh, there's so much of a, a portion of the Old Testament that's dedicated to the, the life of Moses, and, and it's, it's hard not to know about Moses if you know anything about the Bible. So it seems like he was born with all the odds stacked against him. There's no way that Moses would grow to be a hero one day. In fact, he was born with the death wish of Pharaoh on him. Uh, he was born at a time when all of the male children of the Israelites were ordered to be killed. So you would think, well, it's unlikely that a baby who can't defend himself at all is going to be able to stand up and defy uh, the most powerful man in all of Egypt and maybe all of the world at that time. Uh, but against the odds, Moses wasn't killed when he was born. <clears throat> and, but he faced more odds after that. His mother knew that Moses had grown to an age that she could no longer keep him secret. And this is going to be a problem if the Egyptians saw him and found out about him. They may report this back to Pharaoh, and then he would be killed. So Moses' mother, Jochebed, put Moses in a small ark of bulrushes and sent him out into the river. So that doesn't really sound you know, like very good odds, but on top of that, he's floating right towards the portion of the river where Pharaoh's own daughter is going to be bathing. 
but it was the only chance that Moses had. And even though it was a slim one, but once again, against the odds, Pharaoh's daughter did discover this ark of bulrushes and discovered Moses inside, but she didn't order that Moses be killed. Instead, uh, she had Moses' mother uh, nurse the child. And after uh, his mother had weaned him and Pharaoh's daughter brought him into her house, Pharaoh, I mean, likely knew about him, that his daughter had taken this child of the Hebrews and she was raising him as her own. But he doesn't have Moses killed, so Moses gets to live. Now, Moses grows up one day, and he sees the mistreatment of his Hebrew brethren by the Egyptians, as we remember, and he decides that he wants to stand up for them. He has a bout of courage, so he kills this Egyptian tax, taskmaster that was abusing his Hebrew brother. But then he becomes afraid because he realizes the Egyptians know what he did, so he runs. He doesn't stay and stand up to the Egyptians. He doesn't stand and try to defend himself against Pharaoh when Pharaoh asked why he did what he did. <clears throat> he runs. You know, how is he ever supposed to defend and free his Hebrew brethren if he's not even brave enough to stand up for himself whenever he's in a tough situation? So, you know, he's not really looking like much of a hero at this point. He's running from his problems. Well, let's fast forward some number of years. I'm not exactly sure how long, but it was long enough for him to travel to the land of Midian to gain a wife and to have multiple sons. And now he's 80 years old, we read in Exodus chapter 7 and verse 7. <clears throat> so surely he's too old to be a hero now. Uh, an 80-year-old man is more likely to need a hero than to be a hero, right? Well, God speaks to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2, and he tells Moses he wants him to be a hero. And he wants him to go save the children of Israel. Well, you know, maybe for an 80-year-old at this time, maybe Moses is unusually physically and mentally capable. You know, maybe he can do it, and he can be this hero. But then we find out that not only is he 80 years old, but he's slow of tongue. <clears throat> now, I'm not sure if that means that he had some sort of speech impediment or if that means that he just wasn't as quick on the draw as he used to be when talking to others. But regardless, this man who was supposed to be going to Egypt to negotiate with the most powerful man in Egypt for the uh, release of his brethren, <clears throat> he believes himself to be slow of speech and slow of tongue. So not really looking like much of a hero. So now let's recap real quick what Moses had going <clears throat> for him throughout his life. He was sentenced to death before he was born. His life was a gamble on whether or not Pharaoh's daughter would find him there in the river and whether or not she would have him killed or if she would have mercy on him. Uh, when he tried to stand up for his Hebrew brethren, he was found out, and he ran. He was 80 years old, and he was slow of tongue, but he was supposed to negotiate with the most powerful man in all of Egypt. <clears throat> I'm sure he probably wouldn't have been my first pick for a hero to go free these slaves from a powerful ruler. Certainly seems like an unlikely hero. But how does Moses' story end? Did he make a complete fool of himself? Did he fail the children of Israel and fail God on this mission that he was sent on? Well, of course not. As we know, Moses turned out to be one of the greatest examples of a leader, one of the greatest examples of a hero that we can find not only in all the Bible, but in all of history. It's, Moses' story is an amazing one. Uh, he was a man of endurance, uh, a great man. And then Moses is spoken of in this way in Deuteron Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 9 through 12. There the Bible reads, Now Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him as, and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
But since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, and all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land. And by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. So, you know, that was Moses' end. Moses was even buried by God himself in a special place that nobody knew of, as we read of in Deuteronomy chapter 34 and verse 6. Now, it sounds like the ending of a hero to me, if you could write the story of a hero at all. Um, one who the people loved when he died, they mourned for his death. He was one who was respected by God, enough for God to speak to him face to face and to bury him. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about this <clears throat> in a few minutes. But first, I'd like to move on to a second unlikely hero. <clears throat> and that unlikely hero is Rahab. So she comes on the scene really not very long after our last unlikely hero, Moses, uh, had died. Rahab lived in Jericho, as we remember. We can read about her in Joshua chapter 2. Uh, she wasn't a woman of good reputation, as we know. Uh, most likely a lot of people in Jericho knew who she was. And I'm sure that that wasn't always a good thing. You see, she was known for her unrighteous behavior, not because of her good deeds. Uh, men probably just looked at her as an object. And the women of the city, I'm sure, certainly didn't regard her highly by any means. Because she is, or was, a harlot. Plus, you know, men are the real heroes, right? Men are the ones that are strong and you're going out in battle and you're defeating the enemy, not women. Plus, and, you know, especially women who are known to be a harlot on top of that. You know, she's not a destroyer. Or she's not a, a builder of good things and lasting legacies and greatness. She's a destroyer. As Solomon, the wisest man to have ever lived, aside from Jesus, <clears throat> wrote in Proverbs chapter 23, verses 27 and 28, Solomon wrote, For a harlot is a deep pit, and a seductress is a narrow well. She also lies in wait as for a victim, and increases the unfaithful among men. So harlots aren't noble. So how could a harlot ever be regarded as a hero? Now, she's a degenerate. <clears throat> so her ending should have been hardly worth mentioning. You would think that a woman like this in a pagan nation who's a harlot would leave the world without really hardly even being noticed. And maybe some men would even be glad that she was gone and she wouldn't be able to tell the things that she knew. But this isn't the case. She died a hero. And she played a key role in Israel's defeat of the city of Jericho. The city of Jericho was the children of Israel's, Israel's first stop on their conquest of Canaan. Uh, Israel's success or defeat of Jericho would set the tone for the rest of their efforts in inhabiting the Promised Land. They certainly needed the taking of Jericho to be a success, otherwise it might discourage the people again. We remember this isn't the first time that the children of Israel have approached the land of Canaan with the <clears throat> intentions of taking it. And it had been 40 years since any of the children of Israel had stepped foot in Canaan. And that last time was when Moses had sent Joshua and Caleb and 10 other men of the other 10 tribes of Israel to spy out the land. And surely by this time, many things had probably changed in 40 years. So Joshua had decided, hey, we need to take another look at the land and see how much things have changed, see what to expect when we go over. So Joshua sends two men to go to Jericho and take a look around. <clears throat> So after the two men have spent some time looking around the city and making notes and gathering information, 
Rahab finds them knocking on her door. So some commentators, some commentators speculate that she's an innkeeper. I don't know <clears throat> if, if that's the case, if she was an innkeeper at this time. But either way, these men show up. And either way, when an innkeeper <clears throat> or a harlot or, or whether an innkeeper or a harlot or both, the, the men of Israel likely know that this is a place where strangers and travelers frequented and where questions were kept to a minimum. So if they're trying to keep their profile low while they're in town, they're not wanting to go you know, to someone's house who's going to try to sit down and really get personal with them about, you know, where are you from and all that. <clears throat> they just want somewhere to sleep, to lay low, so they can go about their business. <clears throat> Rahab is either very observant or she has connections in the city so that she knows what's going on. She finds out that the king of Jericho has been told that the two Hebrews that have come into her house, uh, uh, king of Jericho has been told that there are two Hebrews that came into her house and he's sending his soldiers to capture them. So she hides the two men on her rooftop under stalks of flax and she waits downstairs for the soldiers to arrive. So the soldiers knock on the door and demand that she bring out the men by order of the king. And the woman, known as a harlot, who is typically known for destroying men, certainly not helping men by any means, as we noted from the proverb a moment ago. Instead, she defends these men from the soldiers. She tells the soldiers that the men did indeed stay in her house, but they've already left, and they would have to hurry if they were going to catch those men before they escaped back to their camp. So the soldiers hurry out of her house in search of the men, and she instructs the two Israelites on how they could get out of Jericho and back to their camp without getting caught. <clears throat> so the men climb out of her window, they go down to the ground outside of the wall, and they make their way back to the camp successfully by following Rahab's directions. Her protection and guidance was instrumental in the two Israelite spies' survival. The morale of the Israelite nation and the success of Israel's conquest against the city of Jericho, you know, not that God wouldn't have accomplished his will by other means if necessary. But not only was she a hero herself, but her great-great-grandson became the second king of Israel, a man of the tribe of Judah, a man after God's own heart, King David. Many years down the road, a man would be born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah, of David's bloodline that would not only be a man, but would be God in the flesh, and that's Jesus. You know, how could such a disappointing person, a person with such a stained past, possibly turn out to be a hero? Once she was labeled as a harlot, you know, her fate should have been sealed to have always been a harlot at that point, right? Well, we'll talk about that more in a few minutes. <clears throat> the last unlikely hero I'd like to consider this evening is Gideon. In Judges chapter 6, we read that the children of Israel had been delivered into the hand of Midian for seven years, and after they had done evil in the sight of God. And at the end of those seven years, the children of Israel cried out to God because of the Midianites, and God sent an angel to speak to a man named Gideon. Now, Gideon certainly did not consider himself to be hero material. He tried to explain to the angel that he must have been mistaken. He must have <clears throat> come to the wrong person. He told the angel of the Lord that his clan was the weakest in Manasseh, and he was the youngest of his father's house. You know, if someone was going to deliver Israel, <clears throat> there were much more well-known leaders within the nation that everyone would readily follow, but this angel insisted that he was the man for the job. And even though the angel reassured him, he still thought, you know, I can't do 
uh, what he's asking me to do. My only hope is if God really is real and if God is really going to be with me and he's going to pull the way to this mission. So we remember that Gideon requested a miracle to be performed in order for him to maybe scrape up enough courage to be able to go through with what the angel had told him to do. And actually he didn't request just one miracle, he requested two because he wasn't so sure about the first one. That wasn't quite enough to give him the courage that he needed. <clears throat> so it doesn't really seem to fit our mental picture of a hero. <clears throat> Here we have a man who's the youngest in his father's house. His clan is the least in the tribe of Manasseh. And beyond that, everyone knew from the blessings of Jacob years prior that even Manasseh was placed under the tribe of Ephraim. But he doesn't seem to be very confident. And like Moses and Rahab, Gideon doesn't really seem to be hero material. Now, who would ever follow him into battle? He's too unsure. He's just a nobody. But we know how Gideon's story ends. Gideon has a turnout of 32,000 men that are willing to go and fight the Midianites. And at this point, Gideon's still not feeling wonderful about that. <clears throat> it's 32,000 men, but uh, this, uh, this Midianite army is formidable. But Gideon watches as 22,000 of these 32,000 men walk away and go back home because they, like he was, they're scared. They don't want to be there. And they don't think they can win this battle. They think they're going to get killed. <clears throat> so Gideon watches as those 22,000 walk away. Then after that, at God's instruction, Gideon watches another 9,700 men walk away from the group of soldiers, leaving him with only 300 soldiers. He didn't feel overly confident when he had the 32,000, and now he has less than 1% of his original army. <clears throat> Despite this, we remember that Gideon led these men to the Midianite camp, and they defeated their enemy that night, and the battle wasn't even close. And Gideon was quite the hero. So there's a common thread between the unlikely heroes that we've talked about so far, you know, besides them being unlikely heroes. And the common thread that I'm talking about is what made the three of them into the heroes that we know them to be today. And that common thread is that all three of them had faith in God. And it showed through in their works. We read in James chapter 2 and verse 22 that our faith should go hand in hand with our works. Moses was old. Moses was slow of speech. It was unlikely that he would be a great hero, except he was living in faithfulness to God. Rahab was a woman of ill reputation. She was known as a harlot. It was unlikely that she would ever be regarded highly and considered a hero, except she had faith in God. We didn't discuss this earlier, but we can talk about it for just a moment now. Uh, the reason why Rahab helped the two Israelite spies was because she believed in God. Now the Israelites, who had seen God's power firsthand in Egypt, they had seen and heard. Well, they had seen uh, the mountain at Mount Sinai and the fire. They had heard God's voice and they were terrified. These Israelites, who firsthand had witnessed God's power, they had questioned in the past whether or not God was able to strengthen them enough for them to be able to go and take the land of Canaan. But here's this pagan woman living in a land apart from the children of Israel. She's not one of God's people, but she has faith, and she believes that God is hes going to win this battle. In Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, she said to the two Israelite men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. 
For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, who you, you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Rahab believed wholeheartedly in God. And Rahab's story teaches us another lesson. <clears throat> you know, I may have a checkered past, and others who know my past might not think much of me. And while that's not ideal, it's certainly not a deal breaker in my ability to make a difference in my family, to make a difference in my church, to make a difference in my community. One of the amazing things about God <clears throat> is that he's all-powerful, and if it's his will, it will come to pass. You don't have to worry about it. And God wants us all to be fruitful. He tells all of us we need to work and we need to be fruitful. And if we will step out in faith and if we will put in the effort to serve God, God can even take our past experiences, even if those past experiences were in service to unrighteousness, and he can turn those things into opportunities for good in the future. And Rahab's assistance of these two Israelite men during their escape from the city of Jericho there was an item that she used that was really instrumental in their success in getting out of that city safely and undetected. And it was a rope. Instead of these men exiting the door of her house back into the walls of Jericho <clears throat> and then trying to somehow slip past the guards unnoticed when they left, which is a good way to be captured and probably killed, she let them down from a window of her house that was on the outside wall of the wall of Jericho because her house was built into the wall. That way they could just hit the ground running. And given her title of being a harlot, it's quite possible that this rope had been used for similar but not so noble reasons in the past. Men who may have wanted to sneak in or sneak out of her house undetected. They don't want people to know what's going on. You know, it may not have been used for such noble purposes in the past. And who would have thought that that knowledge gained by her past mistakes might actually turn out once she has faith and she makes up her mind that she's going to do what's right and she's going to serve the Lord, who would have known that maybe her knowledge would have been able to be turned around to be something uh, positive to help her to be the hero that she turned out to be. God knows how to work out good things. We don't need to worry about that. We just need to step out in faith. Gideon shared this same common thread of faith as well. He looked at his army and he didn't see a ferocious, undefeatable fighting machine. He knew that their odds alone were impossible, but he knew that they weren't alone. He knew who the 302nd member of the army was, and that member was God himself. And they were unstoppable with God in their camp. So Gideon carried out God's instructions in faith and he secured a great victory for God's people. There's a man, I don't know if you're familiar uh, with this name, but his name is Justin Gerhardt. Now there's some in the congregation that may be familiar. He puts out a podcast called Holy Ghost Stories, a play on words there. Um, he tells stories of the Old Testament and when he tells them, he tries to tell them in kind of a ghost story format. So if there's some uh, spooky kind of events that happen. He kind of leans into that a little bit, trying to play on uh, Holy Ghost stories. <clears throat> but he's a very talented storyteller. And 
in telling one of the stories, he asks the question. He says, does an artist require a brush that has painted other masterpieces in order to be able to paint another masterpiece? Well, obviously not. It's not the paintbrush that determines the ability of the artist. And a lot of us have probably learned this lesson. For instance, I may have been trying to learn guitar, and I thought, man, if I just had a more expensive guitar, that guitar with a few more features that looks better, that's a great guitar. If I had that guitar, now I could be a great guitarist if I had that. And then I go and I buy that more expensive guitar. Well, I can play that expensive guitar along somebody like John Mayer, maybe who's a famous musician and a great guitarist, and he may actually be playing my old $200 guitar. But can you guess whose music is going to sound the best? John's is going to sound the best. It's going to sound amazing. It's going to sound like he's playing a $10,000 guitar, and it's going to sound like I'm paying, playing the cheapest ukulele you could pick up at a flea market somewhere. And he's going to be amazing because, and he's just playing a cheapo, but it's because very little of the outcome is dependent on the instrument. The greatness of the music is dependent mostly on the ability of the artist. God doesn't require someone who is already great. He doesn't require someone who has already done great things. He just needs an available instrument. <clears throat> My job and your job and the job of every Christian is to be that instrument that's just sitting on the stand, that's waiting to be picked up when God decides to play. You know, if, if God were to write a statement for my headstone, <clears throat> sorry, I'd be perfectly happy if he wrote, <clears throat> sorry, Daniel wasn't always the best available, but he was the best at always being available. <clears throat> sorry. Uh, trying to do what God wants us to do may be uncomfortable sometimes. You know, I don't feel like I'm hero material. Maybe I feel like I'm out of my comfort zone, out of my area of expertise. It may seem inevitable that I'm just going to fail, going to fall flat on my face. <clears throat> Maybe it's something I'm not familiar with. Don't really know what I'm doing. Maybe I think, I just don't have the right words to say. I would try, but I'll never say the right thing. Well, as God told Moses, one of our unlikely heroes that we talked about, uh, when Moses told God he wouldn't be able to say the right things, God asked Moses in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 11, he said, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? God knows the person that we're talking to better than we do. We just need to be that instrument that's always available and always doing our best. If we're sincere in our service to God, he's tuning us so he can play us just as he pleases. We're just planting a seed or watering a seed. And God cares about that person we're talking to just like he cares about us. And he's going to make sure that we, we say what we need to say. God can help us. And just like Gideon and his army, we're not an army of 301, 301 of Gideon and his 300. I'm not an army of one when I'm doing God's will. I'm an army of two. And that number two is the only one that's needed. His strength is all that's needed. I just have to be there alongside him. So, <clears throat> what I say to someone in trying to teach or spread the gospel, as our brother said in his prayer, we all have the obligation to be spreading God's word and spreading the gospel. 
What I say may not cause them to obey the gospel immediately. They may turn around. They may spit in my face. They may be angry with me. They may never talk to me again. And they might not obey the gospel immediately. But in 30 years, like I said, God knows how to work good things. And in 30 years, they might fall on hard times. They might get sick. They might lose their job. They might lose a family member. Who knows what happens? And they're reminded of the words that I said. And it may bear fruit then. We live in a nation in a time of immediacy and instant gratification. But God is patient and God works in mysterious ways. So don't worry because God made man's mouth. Don't be afraid about not getting it exactly right. Just, just be there and just put in the effort and do what you can and leave the rest up to God. You may very well be an unlikely hero. We all want to make progress. We all want to be better every day. And another quote that Denzel Washington mentioned in one of his speeches is, he said his wife told him the quote, to get, to get something you never had, you have to do something that you never did. You know, if I want to increase my Christian influence in my family or in the church or in my community, it's almost guaranteed that I'm going to have to do something that I've not done before or, or at least something that I've stopped doing. <clears throat> And guess what? You might fall flat on your face. I might fall flat on my face when I try at first. But another Denzel Washington quote, and I promise this is the last one. He said, better to fall forward than to fall backward. So guess what? If you fall forward, you're still making progress. You're still moving in the right direction. Even if you are falling. If you fall backward, then you're just falling back where you've already been, and you've got to get back up. And now you have ground that you have to regain. I think that's a great way to think about failing. Fail forward. As was written in Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 11, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. So we can't stay stuck wallowing in our past, whether that be sins that we've committed or whether that be just the lack of growth and the lack of effort on our part. We have to always be pressing forward, and that's how we are going to be heroes. So my aim for this lesson was to encourage each of us to do what we can. You know, that's what Moses did. That's what Rahab did. That's what Gideon did. You may not consider yourself to be the greatest instrument of God in the world, but guess what? Neither did Moses, Rahab, or Gideon. But they did what they could, and they let God worry about the rest. And if you haven't caught on to it in your studies of the Bible up to this point, God doesn't pick the biggest and the best. God doesn't choose the strongest and the smartest. And you know why? Because God doesn't need someone with a bunch of muscles. God's all-powerful. He's infinitely strong. God doesn't need someone with an IQ of 200. God's omniscient. And what does David write in Psalm 138? In verses 4 through 6, he wrote, All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth, and they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. The strongest and most intelligent too many times want to take credit for themselves when they accomplish something good. Well, it's got to be because they're so smart. It's got to be because they're so strong. It's got to be because they worked so hard. The weak are more likely to give to give the glory to God and to recognize that I can't do anything without him. I wouldn't have anything without him. So think back to Gideon that we talked about earlier. God had 32,000 men ready to attack the Midianites, but God didn't use them. And why? 
Well, God answered that question for himself in Judges chapter 7, verse 2, where he told Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, for Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. God favors humility. <clears throat> God didn't need a big show of force. And honestly, God didn't even need Gideon. God could have destroyed them just like he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So why even bother with Gideon at all? What's the point? Because God wasn't doing it for himself. God was doing it for the children of Israel. Because those 32,000 men who turned around and walked back home, and Gideon and the final 300 that stayed, would all bear witness to the fact that God performed nothing short of a miracle in delivering the enemy into their hands. So they were faithful, despite what sounded like a crazy plan, and God came through like he always does. If we will just trust him, and he delivered the enemy into their hand. This was an event that strengthened the faith of God's people and renewed their spiritual strength. They had been worshiping false gods. We remember that Gideon cut down the altar to Baal and the statue of Asherah earlier before they went to, uh, to attack the, the Midianites. And God used this victory brought about by the faithful actions of a few to draw the people back to himself. And as Jonathan, the son of King Saul, said as he and his armor bearer approached the camp of the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 6, says, Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So if you think you're a nobody, if you think you're not well-spoken enough like Moses did, or if you think you're too old like Moses was, or if you think that you're just not strong enough, or you're a woman like Rahab, or you think the mistakes of your past won't allow you to be useful like Rahab, or if you feel like you're too young like Gideon, or if you lack confidence like Gideon, or if you feel like you don't have the right family name like Gideon, or you feel like you just don't have enough people backing you like Gideon, guess what? These stories illustrate that you are exactly the type of person that God is looking for. God loves to use the underdog to accomplish great things, and when God uses you, just remember to give glory to God. The only ingredients God needs from you are faithfulness, and sincerity. It's the only thing he needs from me. And if I'm sincerely trying to seek and serve God in faith, I'm loving my neighbor, then I can be a hero. Don't sell yourself short. Gideon wasn't great on his own. Moses wasn't perfect. Rahab certainly wasn't perfect, but they had faith in God and God worked through them and God made them great. God made man's mouth. And as God asked Moses in Numbers chapter 11 and verse 23, when Moses questioned if God could really provide meat for a whole month for the children of Israel who numbered 600,000 men on foot alone, God answered, has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you shall see whether or not I say will happen to you or not. And what happened? Just what God said was going to happen. And God's arm wasn't shortened then. His arm's still not shortened today. He's still able to provide. He's still able to work victories now just like he was back then. Just, we need to just step out in faith like these other unlikely heroes and let God work through us to accomplish great things. You don't have to be the greatest instrument available. Just be the greatest at making yourself available and let God handle the rest. So I hope that something uh, we've talked about this evening has been encouraging to you in some way. There's certainly more unlikely heroes in the Bible like David and Joseph, and I'm sure you can think of others that uh, if you want to 
take it upon yourself to study about them and maybe get some more encouragement this week, I would strongly recommend that you do that. But we never want to close a service without first offering the invitation. Uh, one, to any who may not have already obeyed the gospel, uh, we know that we must hear the word, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, believe that the word of God is true, uh, <laughs> repent of our sins, turn away from you know, the words and actions and thoughts we've had in the past that were contrary to God's will, and instead do those things that please God, have to confess our belief in Jesus as the Son of God before men, and then be baptized for the remission of our sins, and then after that, walk in faithfulness for the rest of our days. Or if you've already uh, taken those steps, but uh, you would like the prayers of the church on your behalf, then in either case, we would encourage you to come forward as we stand and sing this song.